Hey, it's Eric Newcomer. Welcome to Newcomer, the podcast. This week I have on Ben Smith, the former editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed News and the co-founder of Semaphore. We talk about the death, unfortunately, of BuzzFeed News. We recorded the episode before the New York Times reported that Vice looked to be on the edge of declaring bankruptcy. And so this has been a period of total decimation for the once wonder children of digital media. Ben and I talk about BuzzFeed and Gawker and his book, Traffic, which is coming out soon. It's a media story, but it's also a story of blitzscaling and unicorn funding. Both BuzzFeed and Vice raise tons of venture capital money, threw all that money at building a media business, and then saw it all unwind. So fun to look back on that period and to get a preview of Ben's upcoming book. I really enjoyed the conversation. Always fun to talk with Ben, someone who's very in touch with the news moments. So we also talked a little bit about Tucker Carlson and the presidential election. Definitely worth sticking it out to the end. Newcomer is brought to you by Vanta. To close and grow customers, you have to earn trust. But demonstrating your security and compliance can be time-consuming, tedious, and expensive. Until you use Vanta. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for the most sought-after security and privacy standards. Save time and money on compliance with Vanta's enterprise-ready trust management platform. For a limited time, newcomer listeners get $1,000 off Vanta. Go to vanta.com slash newcomer to get started. And now for the episode, my conversation with Ben Smith. Ben, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Eric. I'm in a random hotel room at the Harvard Crimson is doing their 150th reunion. So I am at peak media event in my world. My fiance and I met on the Crimson, you know, and then I got engaged like more than a decade later anyway. So if I'd known you went to Harvard before now, it would have totally changed how I thought of you. So good. I'm glad you didn't feel like I shamelessly lead with that. Not at all. Nobody does. It's funny. You're going to the White House Correspondence Center? Yeah. So I'm not, no, I'm actually going to the dinner. Oh, really? Which is now the sort of more interesting stuff and the kind of useful Washington one-stop shop, honestly, where you get to see everybody or a series of parties before and after, including one we just threw last night. I was rereading an old David Carr piece from 2012, where he's sort of profiling BuzzFeed. You just came on. It's like a funny snapshot of the time. Like his lead is about you, I think, scooping that John McCain had endorsed Mitt Romney, which is like also just such a different political environment where like, I feel like there are these beliefs that like these endorsements are going to like, I mean, it seemed like it mattered at the time. No, but, it, felt, know, I mean, it was one of those big ephemeral yeah. scoops you couldn't possibly care about two days later, but was meaningful for a startup news organization. Right. And, you know, he sort of captures the idea, you know, that I think you get that it still plays out true is like this contrast between BuzzFeed going like high and low, right? And this sort of, oh, they're going to, it's a story about the Arab Spring will be next to a picture of your sister's new baby. Why not have a publishing site that embraces those colliding worlds? It's just funny to go down memory lane there. I wanted to just start off, you know, to talk about this book, Traffic. Like, why did you join BuzzFeed in the first place? Like going back to, you had been a reporter at Politico, right? And when you started at BuzzFeed, you were still like doing a column still for Politico, right? Like what convinced you to go over to BuzzFeed? Yeah, I'd been writing a blog for Politico. If people remember blogs, it was this, a blog. early, this, oh, right. this then earlier blog, form right? of a, this kind of transitional form of digital media. And it was like that blog with a handful of others were sort of where the 
2008 presidential race had been arbitrated. And I could just, you could feel, and I could also see in the traffic because I'd gotten a political engineer to embed an extreme tracker, if anybody remembers what that is, into the header of my blog. And so I could okay. sort of watch the traffic click by click and did. Yeah. And both could see the intensity with which people were reading about that race and sort of feel it was so fun. You were just in this rolling conversation with, you know, tens of thousands of people, some of them, you know, the chief of staff to the candidate and some of them smart, clever, random people. Right. Good ideas. And in 2008, 2009, that still happens. And then in like 2010, 2011, you can both feel and see in the traffic that the conversation has moved to Twitter. And mm. that when you break a story, kind of what you want to see is, oh my God, is it traveling on Twitter? Are people sharing right. it? Are the people in that conversation sharing it? Oh, and by the way, like the commenters, the sources, the readers, a lot of people, like if you're that intensely immersed in it, you know by name, have moved over to Twitter right. too. Right. And so when Jonah came to me and said, I want to start this new news organization that just takes for granted that Facebook and Twitter are the front page of the internet right. and that the media right. company's goal is to punch through there. It's like, that's what I was already doing. Had not articulated it as clearly as he could. And yeah. also could not really explain it to my political colleagues. Like it was sort you know, right. they were very focused on, you know, oh, can you write the big homepage story? Hmm. Which I think to some degree was what felt like the job. But for me, it felt like being asked, like, can you like fill something in for print? Like felt like right. this ancient, outmoded thing to have to do. And, you know, I'm having you on this podcast that focuses on like startups and venture capital, partially like looking through the list. I mean, reading this old story, you see like it was the Lairs who are investors, Ken Lair, NEA, Hearst Interactive, SoftBank, RRE, like, you know, tech investors were going behind BuzzFeed early on. Did you talk? Was it all Jonah talking to the sort of VCs or did you spend much time while you were? No, there were, I mean, I didn't, I wasn't, I was around and in some of those conversations when we went out and pitched Andreessen and Horowitz in 2012, I was certainly in those meetings, although I was a political journalist who'd been totally immersed in that. I had no idea about, I mean, I didn't know anything about the media business, like much less about the (laughs) sort of second order financial elements. Like I'd been totally focused on the reporting. But I do think it's interesting because, you know, in retrospect, and as I've written this book, and I there was a chapter that went around, we'll talk about later about, you know, our in retrospectively just unbelievably dumb decision not to sell the company. Yes, and I so I've, have that my, yeah. I've thought a little lately, but like, what the hell were we thinking? And what were they thinking when they put right. this much money into BuzzFeed and into other companies? Like it, right. what even was the bet? It's hard to explain. And I would not now right. go out and say to anyone, I'm doing a media startup and, you know, we're going to generate the kind of returns in four years that a venture capitalist would be satisfied with. Right. I think in a good case, it's a, you know, we create a lot of value, but not that fast. But Chris Dixon, who does the Coinbase investment, he leads the investment, Andreessen and Horowitz, right? That's yeah, these are really smart people. Yeah. Right. He's a smart person. Well, I mean, right. It's easy to forget, first, just the extent to which the, we felt like the wind was crazily at our back. Right. And Jonah had like been the first to see the direction of the wind and like hoist up a sail. And we, like just the traffic was growing like crazy. And people were responding well to this blend of news and fun stuff, which sort of was a mirror of your Facebook feed at the time, which people also right. were responding well to. 
And we were growing with Facebook most of all, and we were sort of in the Facebook ecosystem. We knew that was a risk, but it was also an opportunity. And the metaphor that was so powerful then, you know, Ken Lear, the chairman, the founder of Lear Ventures, had, had been at MTV in the earliest days. And the metaphor that we thought that we were, the piece of history we thought we were reliving was the birth of cable, most of all, when you had a new way of distributing content. And then, you know, these lines laid, you know, in the earth and a bunch of media companies, enduring, incredibly valuable media companies, CNN, ESPN, Fox, you know, MTV, right. grow up as the content for these pipes. And there's a mutual, you know, there's a tug of war between a continual tug of war between the cable operator and the content company over who gets the value. But right. there's also a mutual recognition that each is essential and that they need, and right. that, it's, that ecosystem is important. And so I think we thought, wow, well, if you were going to be, you know, social media is the pipes, it's the cable, and we're going to be the content layer. And there are going to be a number of content companies like right. who grow up and become Viacom. It obviously, I say this now, and I sound like right, an right. insane person, <laughs> but at the time that did not seem utterly implausible. And I think a little about, is there an alternate version of history where these social media companies, which are now dying, see into the future that their competitor are not each other, but are Netflix, are, you know, change, are sort of the cultural change, yeah. are, and that they need to get to a place where they're delivering content people love and that they can't rely on UGC for it. Well, yeah, I mean, Facebook in particular, you know, has been a terrible partner throughout its whole history. You know, it's like screws over Zynga, screws over, you know, the gaming company, you know, in your book, it's, you know, you have like Jonah, like texting with what, like top product people at Facebook, really feeling like, oh no, we've got our arms around it. We know where this company is going to go. And then, you know, Facebook, it seems like it betrays everybody at some point and does. Yeah, I mean, I don't think they owed us anything. I don't really see it as a betrayal. And I think they were trying to, I mean, I think often when media companies look at Facebook, it's like you're looking through the telescope from the opposite end and trying to figure out what's Mm. going on. Like it's an unequal relationship and Facebook wasn't thinking much about media companies. It wasn't, it was sort of thinking about users. I do think as you watch that blue app lose its cultural place, you know, it's interesting to think about if they had tried to cultivate kind of a, the sort of healthy ecosystem the cable companies did, you know, where, I mean, cable would not have stopped around if it was all public access. Right. Yeah. Early on a network, you need to sort of facilitate sort of premium content. Well, that's the, hold on. No, what you just said is the lie that they tell VCs that early on you need to seed the premium content so that it'll come in for free. I think what I'm saying is that you need to develop a long-term relationship where you share like half the value with media companies if you want them to stick around. Like, you know, and it turns it into a way worse business. It turns it into the media business. Nobody wants to be in the media business. Right. I mean, in some ways that sounds like YouTube where, you know, they do give a large share They give a modest, they give a decent share of one of their revenue streams to creators. But no, it sounds like NBC Universal, right? It sounds like companies that that, that these incredible, these very highly valued tech companies do not want to emulate. Right. I mean, in the book, you set it up as this duel with Gawker, or I wanted to bring Gawker into the story here a little bit. I mean, you know, obviously in Silicon Valley's memory, sort of, I think Valleywag sits in the center of it and Peter Thiel bringing down Gawker. I feel like 
in particular with Silicon Valley people, they don't have many like fond memories of Gawker. But I think if you talk to media people, it's like, oh my God, they were like so alive. And, you know, there were some truly like great pieces. I mean, can you capture some of the like, yeah, what was exciting about Gawker at sort of its peak and what represented like what was great about it? Yeah, what was great about it for real? I mean, a couple of things. One was that Gawker itself early on were, you know, were these, the writers were almost entirely like young women who were outsiders, who were great writers and who were, you know, basically making fun of the ossified, pathetic, decaying New York Times, Condé Nast world of big New York media. And so obviously outsiders that if they were being a little mean and they were sometimes, you know, they were the the power dynamic was so total in the other direction. They were punching up. And also they were capturing this New York in this particular moment. To me, the most interesting and powerful and emblematic of all those sites was the site Jezebel, which was a women's blog, which probably neither you nor I spent our time reading, but it was run by this woman, Anna Holmes, this brilliant kind of like totally alienated product of glamour where she's been writing like the dumbest stuff and she hates it and comes out. Nick, the founder of Gawker, has persuaded himself this is a great way to sell makeup advertising. And Anna sort mm. of lets him believe this. Does, is to, <laughs> to accept somebody's advice not to put the word feminist in her proposal is hired. Mm. And the first thing they do is they offer a $10,000 bounty for someone who can get an unretouched before version of some fashion magazine spread. Amazing. Which they yeah. get. Like some anonymous person turns up and right. collects the cash. Right. And it just, and they did, they started counting how many black models were in each issue of every magazine, which was like yeah, zero. Yeah. yeah. And right. the fashion industry, like, it's a big industry that has a lot of cultural power and, right. you know, panics about them and responds by changing its ways in what are obviously, I think, kind of positive ways. And the language they wrote in was just so much the way young women actually talk to each other, not the right. bullshit of women's magazines, which also had, like, it had all to me what seems like really obviously positive cultural impact and also a way commenters and a relationship with their audience that was totally pathological, that if they strayed from the line or if they disappointed their audience, their audience would go nuts and attack them personally. They felt captive yeah. to their audience in a way mm. that was exactly like what social media would become. And they right. and, and after a year of it, like they kind of self-immolated. And there is this sort of moment where it's like, oh, they lived in the year 2007, basically through like both the kind of interesting positive power of this new media world and the like incredibly damaging part. The other thing I'd say it's interesting in that context is just like, and I think this is one of the many things that Silicon Valley people had against Valleywag in particular, but it was often incredibly sexist, like casually yeah. sexist. You know, so you look right. back and you're like, wow, the internet. Then. And not that I'm sure that may not be like the absolute top priority for a lot of Silicon Valley people, but one of the things I thought was really emblematic was Nick Denton was writing Valleywag for a while himself, the founder yeah. of Gawker, who was a British journalist who was importing some of the nastiness of the and fun right. of the British press and writes this whole piece about like how Sarah Lacey, who's running Pando daily, like is only good at her job because she's attractive and people only talk to her because she's Yikes. attractive or something. And you're just like, Yikes. what is this piece of cut? Like this is horrendous, right. you know? And I don't know. Like there, it's, it was it's amazing thread. going back and reading old yeah. stories and like, oh my God, it was such a different culture. And like, it's a reminder that you live so much in your time. I mean, yeah. Yes, totally. Definitely. No, that was, I mean, and the thing Peter Thiel gets mad about is that he's Owen Thomas writes a piece, you know, that's 
basically out in Teal. The Teal wasn't exactly in the closet, and I'm not sure Teal is right. Owen not Thomas's ashamed. whole argument, which I'm somewhat sympathetic to, is this idea that it was a very well known thing in Silicon Valley, but it was just like the kind of thing you didn't say online. Yeah, and in some right. ways, like what Gawker yeah, you wouldn't existed say in the press to do was and, to bridge and, that. And I'm pretty unsympathetic to adding people in general, so I, I don't, I don't know, I, I don't love it. But in any case, what Teal later told Ryan Holiday was that the thing that really bothered him wasn't that, but was that Denton had gone into the comments and been like, "There's something with he's so weird, there's something weird about bad about this Teal guy," and just said a bunch of mean right. stuff in the comments, like. Imagine, you know, like A.G. Salzberger is like in the comments of a New York Times article right. being like, I'm reading this article and I just don't like this guy. I mean, it's just such a different yeah. moment. To me, it does not justify a deranged secret crusade to destroy a bunch of people's jobs. But it did. Would Gawker have been that. a good business if Teal doesn't bring it down in the lawsuit or like where do you it's think a great question doctor was a good business because nick unlike jonah peretti and me at buzzfeed unlike many others had kept his costs really low turns out that's part of being a good business who knew but yes gawker was a profitable advertising business that was growing that had a bunch of different properties gizmodo in particular had emerged as a really just like valuable property yeah, Nick did not take venture investment, had been burned in an earlier part of his career when he tried to build a kind of an early Google reader type thing mm. and clashed with his own investors over it and thought they were idiots. And so really didn't take investment, bootstrapped it. And so it was a good business. But as you said, it was like deeply a product of its, of a moment. And the thing right. that ultimately in this whole Hogan lawsuit that, you know, with Teal's help destroyed it. You know, it's pretty incomprehensible now that you would publish a sex tape, like someone right. else's intimate right. video. Like what? Well, and I mean, well, it's now hard that's to just left to, to the also. randoms on the internet. We reporters, yeah, don't it's need revenge to do it. porn. You know, the four chan, you know, you know those people. Yeah, but right. it's. I mean, it's something you could go to jail for. Like right, it's right, revenge right. It's porn. Terrible. I mean, it's I'm not, not. I'm not making. No, no I'm just saying it's right. not ambiguous at all now right. how people feel about it and. Right. I do think there's this thing where Gawker was rooted in this moment where they were the outsiders, they were powerless, they were having fun. And right. in the aughts, they published a lot of sex tapes. Like there was a, I mean, sure, I forget this, like Fred Durst's sex tape was a thing. Right. And he complained and threatened to sue them. They told him to fuck off and he kind of caved and sent them flowers. And there was a series of, there were Brett Favre's dick pics were a thing. I mean, this is a whole, there's a whole part of the internet that the was whole about that. punching up excuse became too powerful of a concept like it was like oh anything's well, allowed if we're punching yeah and up. also they and also right as they think they're punching up the rest of the media is like collapsing and gawker right. is growing and they're and the power right. dynamic shifts a bit right and they're sort of an established media company that's just punching people in the face and not necessarily and, up. and rich people care about their reputations i think the media can be like you're rich like who cares like we can say whatever you want but you know people Oh, you, we're talking about like Silicon Valley in particular. Yeah, right. Well, punching no, up isn't actually both. much no, of an no. excuse. You should write stories what? that are accurate. You know, I agree with accurate. you that punching right. up is not right. an excuse. Like, ultimately, right. you should write stories that are accurate. I think in the sort of, like, jokey internal politics of the media world, which Gawker was born into, yeah. you know, there was it was genuinely fun and harmless for this blogger to go into the Condé Nast, sneak into the Condé Nast cafeteria and make sure. fun of the culture of the Condé Nast cafeteria, right? Like there and was, there the dynamic is a little hard where the old school media people can't write the same type of piece back. Or there, you know, there was such a stylistic yeah, but, advantage to Gawker. Yeah, yeah, to, there, there's a, there had been a tradition, like Spy Magazine was the sort of right. precursor of it. There was sort of a tradition of 
witty outsiders skewering the old media and ah, it's sort of healthy and basically harmless dynamic. I want to go back to BuzzFeed. Max Reed in the Washington Post has like a great summary take on your book. I mean, he writes about the scene you have in traffic with, you know, where you guys are all debating, you know, what Disney paying $650 million to buy you what you're smoking weed. Is that right? And basically you decide not to do it. And Steinberg, what the founder of Cheddar, U.S. Daily Mail, is advocating for it. And, you know, basically the suggestion from Max is that, you know, this was like a pump and dump. And the only person to really realize that was the case that you had to sell after the pump was Steinberger. I'm curious what your take on this. I mean, it's obviously in retrospect, we should have sold the company. I mean, you know, it's very easy in retrospect. And right. I mean, Max is a wonderful writer and was actually very helpful with the book. And I, you know, just, I would say I disagree with him with no malice, but that was that piece is just classic late docker and it's beautifully written. It's incredibly smug politically. It sort of has its own <laughs> political point of view. And it yeah. assumes that it just, yeah, and it just sort of imports this sort of level of, well, of course I know it all. And these people are all right. idiots. Right. You know what I mean? Sure. Well, you know, it's, it's sort of, the kind of, and thus sort of adds nothing in a funny way, but the writing's great. Right. Yeah. I mean, in retrospect, it was a disaster, right? At the time, it wasn't so obvious that the path, or it wasn't so obvious to me, and maybe it was to Max. Right. It was a pump and dump. The path social sold, media was taking. Right. Yeah was the one it then took and that the relationship right. between social media and publishers, you know, would go the way it went. I feel like the idea that was like hard to believe then, and this sort of comes through in the car piece that I was starting with. But, I should also, car- but just to go yeah. back, like we should have been more cynical and greedy, right? I mean, that's really like the lesson <laughs> I think that he's actually saying is that people should right. be more cynical and greedy and always assume the worst. Right. And the decision we made was partly because we felt we had the wind of the bath and we were growing and p- partly, and this is like, I mean, if you think about it from sort of the perspective of shareholder value, which is not how I as a journalist was thinking about it at the time, you know, pretty irresponsible, but was that we had felt like we were just getting traction with this thing. And that at some level, Disney wanted to hire BuzzFeed to sprinkle internet fairy dust on ABC News in particular. And it was just profoundly like not what Jonah and I had signed up for, which is totally selfish. And I assume you were able to raise more venture money because of that deal. And so it feels yeah. like, well, we're getting higher valuations, so we're fine. Or, or is that? A yeah, no, I think we, yeah, we, in fact, we went to NBC and raised, I think it was another $400 million, which I mean, right. a terrible mistake for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, the contradiction of BuzzFeed sort of being both sort of fun and serious, like, do you think that was just like doomed from the start? Or like, do you think brands I mean, I guess, can I think be culture... that many things to people? Right. So, I mean, I think the, I mean, I guess I'm more, I write more about politics and culture than about venture capital. And my, in fact, my colleague, Liz Hoffman, always reads my stories before they go. And occasionally is like, I can't believe you're employed (laughs) when I write about business. So let me copy out that. But I do think that the culture, like basically, I mean, it's so hard to get your head back there. But there was this moment when people were like, the Facebook newsfeed is so great. Baby pictures and memes and hard news all together mixed up, like cool. Right. And BuzzFeed was a product of that moment. And people liked it. Like consumers liked it. It was a thing consumers liked. And then this tidal wave of incredibly divisive populist politics comes kind of sweeping through society and social media. And people don't like their feet. And and a lot of people do not like that as much, do not find the experience of reading about Donald Trump 
next to baby pictures and memes or reading about, you know, you know, how much you hate Hillary Clinton. It, it, like it's a, it's not the same experience and people don't like it. And Facebook starts ineptly trying to figure out how to respond to that and to, wow, we're getting all this engagement. We want right. more of it. We want it to be meaningful and somehow land with a measure called meaningful social interaction, which is like the worst combination of all of the possible ways to do it, where they're yeah. like, well, we don't want people just getting kind of random garbage, low quality fake news flying by. We want stuff they really engage with. And by engagement, right. I mean, I'm posting a story saying that Donald Trump is great. You are commenting, kill yourself 17 times. <laughs> and right. the algorithm is like, this is great. Eric is really right. engaged. Right. I mean, I feel like people outside of the media underestimate how much just like the weird capriciousness of Facebook could like form some of the journalist view of tech. You know, it's just like, oh, man, media is just subject to the sort of random, not fully thought through views of social media companies. And then, you know, yeah. success or failures. And, the, and, and that again, there is this level where media, we think that they're thinking about us. And in right. fact, what's that Shakespeare line, you know, like, like flies to wanton boys or we to the gods, you know, like, like they're making decisions that are about engagement and about audience. And right. they're very, to, from my perspective, and I think now quite obviously, reluctant to accept that politics and culture are larger forces that they are themselves totally subject to. And that they ignore these and kind of think they see these big political and social trends as like product trends kind of miss them and then light their own platform on fire as a result, basically. I wanted to offer a view on BuzzFeed. Just, I mean, it fits to me into sort of the classic venture capital blitz scale sort of funding story, right? It's like, just like an Uber or a WeWork where it's like, we're going to throw a lot of money at something before it's profitable. It's going to get, you know, outsized attention relative to how much we know the business is going to work. Obviously, like, Uber, I do think is a transformational business. And obviously, I think as a reporter, like BuzzFeed News, like sort of changed how everyone wrote. But at the end of the day, you know, the amount of venture capital funding and the ability to spend at a loss, like just drives an audience and attention that's just like unjust relative to sort of what it is accomplished. You know, I was at and information you know, in 2015 and, you know, Jessica always fairly feels that like, you know, I don't think they got sort of the attention they deserve because it's a bootstrapped business. And, you know, you've written profiles about her, so you certainly understand that. But it it is a little frustrating. The media and the narrative and the culture just broadly just buys that whoever has money and is spending it is sort of what matters relative to like, I don't know, thinking about these things is like, which business is going to last? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And it's really disturbing. Nick was incredibly and kind of rightly resentful that Jonah had raised all these money and was you know, overpaying his people and hiring them from his point of view. Right. And I think Jessica too. And right. And it was, I mean, I don't think this is particularly specific to media, but you have these venture backed companies that can, you know, spend and lose money in an attempt to get scale. And by the way, like investors do that because sometimes it works. Right. But in this case, it both did not work. And obviously, you know, kind of was incredibly frustrating to their competitors. Right. You know, Max flags this again, but in the Rosencrantz Guildenstern line or like this sense that, you know, you're writing this book about BuzzFeed and Gawker. I mean, do you and there's a question of whether are they really like the main characters or like, will they last or like, what is your true view on sort of 
you know, in a decade, how much we'll remember this story or how you reckon with sort of their lasting impact. Yeah. I mean, I think their lasting impact on, I mean, we know what lasting is a funny word, but I think their impact on culture and journalism was obvious. And, you know, they kind of wind up kind of leading the way, I mean, into whatever the hell it is we're doing now for better or for worse. And I mean, the New York Times won. I mean, the New York Times, you know, incredibly, I had a kind of incredible business story. Like they did not follow fast, but they did like follow slow and thoughtfully right. and really build incredible digital product. Now they're copying you know, the Axios semaphore headline styles, right? That's yeah, they the also they absorb. <laughs> yeah, and, they, and I mean, they, they, and it's still very, they have a lot of challenges and it's hard to run a big institution and things like that, but they have a very devoted audience. And they did basically absorb Many of the people who were running these companies went to work by 2019, 2020. You know, you Kara went Swisher, and wrote a column for them. Dozens yes, of people. Kara yeah. Swisher and me <laughs> and Corey Sika and Dodai Stewart from Jezebel and a bunch of people, many more who right. had been part of this moment go to the New York Times and they sort of absorb a lot of its DNA, like for better and for worse, by the way, because we're a bunch of lunatics who right. hate each other and have right. wildly varying views on what journalism ought to be and on whether the New York right. Times is doing it right. And I think when you sort of look at the internal conflict of the New York Times, some of it is that like, like I, I think Corey Sika is brilliant and love him, but I think we like profoundly disagree about what journalism ought to be and probably yeah. both disagree with some things that the New York Times leadership thinks. And it's tough to run a place where everybody, where you have these dueling philosophies. And I think what's happening now yeah. is that a lot of, we're all like, you know, when for various reasons, like we didn't totally get absorbed by the organism and they it took what it could from this strain of DNA, but is now, I think, pushing people back out who it thinks doesn't really fit the New York Times mold, which is also probably healthy. It's going back to be more the original New York Times? It's, it's just, it had, I mean, it has to be something. It can't just be the whole internet. And it kind of right. slightly by accident swallowed the whole internet. Okay, so, you know, you're obviously the co-founder of Semaphore. In some ways, we are indicting the venture back model media not saying it's impossible i mean you all raised a ton of money from sam bankman freed what makes you know your strategy with semaphore different from the experience with buzzfeed i mean it's a very different moment right so if i told you our strategy was to treat the social media companies like they were cable i mean you know that would not be a wise strategy even (laughs) different broken metaphor than we did last no sorry No, I mean, you you know, I mean, I think, let's see, one is that we didn't take any venture money. And that was the choice. You know, we have raised like rich media money or pretty large number of investors who are sophisticated people who, you know, want this, you know, who really, I think, care about returns and about this being good business, but aren't under the illusion that it's going to 100x in four years. And Justin and I, and I think from my perspective, you know, I came in to BuzzFeed never really thought at all about the business of news and how different it is from the quote unquote media business mm. for a number of boring reasons related to the ad market, description market. But I did want to, having, you know, kind of gone through this stuff at BuzzFeed myself, like learned on the job how to try to generate revenue around news and not done a particularly good job of it, wanted to build a news business that is a harder business than an entertainment business, I would say. So, Wait, sorry, the distinction you're dividing between like the business of media and the business of news, or sorry, can you it, tease that out a little yeah, bit? Yeah, I mean, around? media includes theme parks. It includes oh, movies. Okay, it includes entertainment. <laughs> you're saying news is hard mode for media. It's a subset that's Yeah, that's like, I think that's right. It's hard mode, but it's right. also, it's a different set of advertisers. It's a different, it's an right. overlapping and different set of consumers. 
And, you know, there's a range of how good the executives are and how experienced they are in that news business. I think part of the reason right. that I was excited to do this is I think my partner, Justin Smith, no relation, as we call him, <laughs> is, you know, is really, I think, maybe the most successful news executive of his generation, you know, turned around the Atlantic turned around Bloomberg, you know, and I don't think that investors came in because they said, wow, Ben is really like, he tweets a lot of scoops. I think they came in because they said, wow, Justin has like created a ton of value for a series of news publishers over his 30 sure. year career. And that to me was actually like really, you know, that was really important to me, you know, just to build a sustainable business around news. Right. And you're not giving yourself enough credit. I mean, literally, I mean, I try to emulate your writing style. I feel like there's so many reporters that look to your sort of style of writing and publicly communicating as sort of the state of the art in terms of where good reporters are today. And I'm certainly that's helped you build a newsroom. Yeah, no, I mean, I think I'm a pretty good editor and reporter. And I love <laughs> scoops, but I'm just saying, like, I don't think that investors were like, based on this guy's record of tweets, as well as his like, you know, record of you know, business savvy were investing. I think they thought, well, like it's good. I know, but I, in some ways I think that's, some, I mean, that's always frustrating to me. I feel like one thing that like the investor maybe I'm understanding, under, maybe I'm not giving myself enough credit. I'm just underestimates saying that, about media is that like the pros and the text is like the product of the media business, right? Mm. You know, like the whole BuzzFeed experience is like, we're going to be like data, you know, like we're going to look at how like it works on Facebook and we're going to have lots of analytics and we're going to be experts at that. And that is like a type of tech company too. But like Apple and like the tech companies that VCs worship are like product companies where you're like, fuck the data. Like we know what's like a great product and we like really curate it. And I think in a similar way, like great media businesses are like, we know what like the great product is and we're not going to like chase some like number that we don't even really know what it means down like a rabbit hole to destroy like this product that people expect. from. Yeah, us. I feel like I'm now like kind of old and, have sort of reject all binaries like that. Like, I think <laughs> that when we were good at BuzzFeed, we had a bunch of data nobody else had, and it was really useful, right. and it made our bespoke products better, because ultimately there is a kind of media person who you and I know well, and journalist, who just pours enormous energy into a story so that it will win a prize from a prize yes. jury, and no one will ever right. read it. Yeah, And he's almost dismissive and sneering about the audience. And I think right. there's like that. I, and I kind of find that repellent as well. Right. So. Uh, yes, I do. I yeah, certainly I, the product is built for the customer, you know, obviously as a sub stacker, I'm like, oh, yes, it is for them. Not right. Right. Yeah. Right. And that's what the data tells you. But you also if the data is telling you to treat your customers like total idiots and to trick them, like, don't do that. Right. So, you know, I mean, so I think there, I think you can be totally informed by and immersed in data without. You know, it's like in these sort of early days of digital media. And it's, again, you got to get your head back to the point where your competitors just didn't have data and you did, but it's like suddenly you're flying with instruments and they are flying right. without instruments. And it's a huge advantage. Not that you can't fly right. a plane without instruments. Yeah, and I'm not against data. I guess it's more just, if you know what your product is about, you can interpret the data better, right? Like yeah, if exactly. I look at certain numbers, it might be like, you could find some correlation of time of day I publish, but really it's like, oh, I publish my best stories like late in the day because I like need to get them out because they're scoops or, you know what I mean? Because you, you sleep you until 3 of, p.m. every day. Yes. <laughs> you need sort of to understand, yeah, your business and interpret the data. Yeah. I want to like get a little bit more, you know, the old media columnist or what's, I mean, spinning out and not in a self-interested semaphore way. Like, where do you think like the media business is going now or particularly like the news media 
business or like what are you optimistic about in terms of opportunities like obviously i'm like yeah i mean that is a big piece of it i mean i think you know it's i can't really like deceive anybody about what i think because i'm we're really doing that you have a very active thesis yeah i mean i think our thesis i mean it's a few things one is certainly that building that individual you know that people trust individuals more than they trust sort of faceless brands and that's you know obviously what you're doing and it's the Substack model and it's also the again if you step outside media it's what you see in politics it's what you see in sports donald trump is more important than the republican party you know so it's what you've seen so it's not i don't think it's some searing insight about digital journalism but i do think it's a moment when you can build a brand and a build a news organization around great reporters but i think it makes sense in the real world people trust people and now we have the tools yeah. to extend a person far enough that it can be as big. Yeah, as a brand. I think that's right. And I think, I mean, I guess I think the other, if you look at data or if you just talk to people, the two big complaints about media are that people feel totally overwhelmed by the quantity and they don't know right. what to trust. And so we're trying to run at that. We have individual journalists who are being totally transparent about you know, what they think. And we're doing it in a kind of a stylized way where our stories are literally segmented into, here's the scoop. Here's what I learned about Tucker Carlson yesterday. Here's what I think it means. You know, I think that the Fox Press shop is probably lying as usual, but I could be wrong. And I'm just going to say that because that is actually where I'm coming from on this and I have a lot of experience. But again, if you have an interesting hypothesis, almost by definition, you could be wrong. Like if 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 there's no chance you could be wrong, you're saying something totally banal and useless and you're not, your expertise is sort of wasted. And then we really go out of our way to find somebody smart who disagrees with that, with that thesis and include that and include all the other stuff that's been written around this subject. Right. Because one of the sort of most annoying things consumers have to do on the internet right now is you read a story in a publication you like and respect, like Newcomer, and then you're like, huh, this is probably right, but I'm just for safety going to Google seven right. other stories right, on exactly. the same topic and see what they right. say, which is well, not like the a fun way to story, live. Which I want to talk about. I mean, yeah, you have to read yeah, But people so feel like they have to triangulate to... the truth. And right. that's not a, it's just not like a particularly like consumer friendly way to live. And then we also do think, and I think based on kind of experience, it's just that a lot of the best stories are global, like to understand the world these days. If you want to understand like, you know, really the obvious stories, COVID social media, the rise of the right wing, you sort of miss out. I think a lot of consumers realize this if you're getting a sort of city hall perspective on it. You know, COVID is basically the product of Donald Trump mismanagement, which is a lot of the coverage. It's like, well, yes, but also you got to look at what, you know, an informed reader is seeing stuff from around the world and there are readers around the world looking for, in their own regions, these same problems being solved. So we launched in the US, in Sub-Saharan Africa, have big global aspirations. Also, both, I think, have enough experience to not bite off more than we can chew and are not biting off any more than this right now. How did you pick Africa as a coverage area? You know, obviously, I run a business that's like, I write about money because it's very monetizable. And, you know, like if I were to pick a country, it would be like India or China or something. I don't know. How did you pick? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, from our perspective, it's, you know, most of our investments in the U.S., most of our revenue will be in the U.S. It's the biggest by far, I mean, I think like 60% of all the whole news business in the world is in the U.S. I mean, it's the most developed media market. And then, you know, these African economies and countries are the demographically, economically, the fastest growing. And, to, and I think when you, we really wanted, you know, we're thinking about 
trying to build for, you know, a media company for this century. I mean, you don't go to London, you look south and east. And it's also a place where there's a, it's for a variety of reasons, there's really an opportunity there and there's an audience and there are advertisers who want, who are interested in really high quality journalism. And, and then the last thing is just talent. Like Yinka, the editor, is a genius who's done this before and we were able to get him. Are scoops a business driver? Or I have personal curiosity in this. Or like, what is the value? Well, of what scoops? do you find? Do scoops convert for you? Stories that don't have, your biggest like, stories drive the conversions? Yeah, I would assume so, yes, right? Yes. Big stories and like you yeah, get a I lot of early attention on it. scoops and Yeah, I mean but they it call does it feel like, the news business. It needs to have right. news in it. Like that's it. Right. I just think certainly, like, yeah. Unless your name literally is Matt Levine, there's an exception right. if your name is Matt Levine that you don't have to have any news. <laughs> the great but everybody else has to have news. This. Yeah. <laughs> right. I think scoops are necessary, but not sufficient unless. But if you did a fast follow strategy, like if you were like super smart on the beat, but you only like, as soon as somebody has a scoop, you like matched it and like, I don't know. Do you think that would work? Or like, is it the news people want in the time before it's covered or they want to hear it from the person who's in the loop enough to get it? Or I, I just try to disentangle sometimes what it is. Yeah, These people also say they don't care about scoops. Sometimes I think consumers, don't, are like, consumers do you? not care broadly about scoops. Right. I think if you're starting a new thing, you know, you can, and you probably if you have kind of an interesting thesis about, well, actually, like the story form is broken. We want to do things a little differently. There's this challenge of how do you get people to check out your thing and right. saying, hello, I have a new and interesting theory <laughs> about distribute, about like the organization of articles is not how you do right. that. Because these are folks who are fundamentally like not interested in like no one is interested in meta conversations about news or very few right. nerds. People do want to know <laughs> yeah. what's going on though. And if you can tell them what's going on before somebody else, they will then come look at your site, look at your emails, look, sort of test out right. the thesis of whether they like you or not and maybe stick around. And so in some sense, it's the top of the funnel, it's the tip of the spear, but it also is the thing that if you are a really good reporter who is really dug into a beat, you better be getting scoops. If not, like, what right. are you doing? in this sort of meta news narrative, what is your read on what this next election, presidential election will look like in terms of beat reporters or going back to the sort of thesis at the beginning of the conversation that like, I don't know, you read news stories and news coverage from like a previous period and it's like bewildering and it's like, why do we care about that? Like, why do we write these stories this way? What is your view on like the type of conversation we're going to have in this election cycle, especially with Trump, where it feels like people are so practiced in, or the last thing I'll say with Trump, especially like at the end of the Trump administration, some of the media outlets felt more, they suddenly had more cl moral clarity on it where they would directly say like, he's, you know, the New York Times stories, I think got much more like condemning once he lost the election and like how yeah, they go back I, to the old way once, once he's running or, you know, I don't know. I mean, I never really totally saw the value of telling a New York Times reader that Donald Trump is also <laughs> bad. Like, right. They, they think they're already. Well, just, I guess, right. it's, you know, they, if they want to be told, we agree with you that he's bad, like, right. sure. But it's not, I don't know, it's not straight. I think a lot of energy was wasted on the thesis that the world stance the New York Times takes toward right. Donald Trump is changing anyone's mind. I mean, I think this is a weird cycle because... It's just sort of Biden and Trump kind of shuffling toward each other for one last battle, these two men in their 
you're going to be in their eighties. And so there's no democratic primary and primaries rather than the general election are, you know, a delight to cover, but also like kind of where the parties shape their ideas. Right. It's where, you know, it's the sort of wide open part and Biden won't have one and or a meaningful one. And the Republican primary is taking its time to get started. I mean, I think the most interesting, in a way, the most interesting thing happening is watching the Republican Party reckon with abortion rights. Like you saw mm. Nikki Haley, who's not an idiot, go out there and give a speech saying that, well, like, you know, we should all agree that advocating for a 15-week ban, you know, is an appropriate place, which sort of matches where a lot of polling is. And then if you ask her, okay, are you for a 15-week ban? She declines to comment. I mean, it's a very huh. complicated, right. I mean, they are truly the sort of dog that caught the political car on this. And I right. think there's very few Americans want the sort of, you know, outright bans on abortion that they've, in some cases, put into place. The many Americans and women are like just furious and outraged and incomprehending that they would do this stuff. And so they're, you know, they're in through the primary process, on one hand, going to be trying to wriggle out of this. On the other hand, there'll be candidates in the primary trying to get that anti-abortion base and trying to, you know, right. keep, to try to pull those. And I think that'll be, I mean, I think people underestimate the, I mean, this is sort of a day, I'm sort of stealing this from Weigel, but I do think people underestimate how much policy is made in these primaries. And the other thing is there's this race to the most extreme anti-trans position. And I think for a lot of, you know, kind of center-left people who think that, well, like some of the reports in Europe, you know, on sort of the treatment of trans kids is troubling that, you know, they made these new friends on the right who were like, yes, we love your accurate reporting on right. certain gender youth clinics. <laughs> also, we don't think trans people exist and we want to, right. you know, imprison them, right? And call right. them rumors and all this really like right. crazy, you know, really extremist views that, yeah, it's kind of deny the existence of trans people. And that conversation is just racing to the right in a way that, again, I don't right. really think is where, you know, swing voters in the suburbs, which is where the election will be decided, right. are. And so all that in the Republican primary is really interesting, the substance of it. But right now, Donald Trump is dominating it from a political perspective. So is it bad business for the media? Like, do you think there's going to be... Yeah. A, I mean, it seems like Joe Biden almost wants it to be like a sleepy election where it's like, just vote for the guy. You know? Yeah. I think like I he's mean, not going to be out there all the time. You know, I don't know. I mean, I would say like, I think everyone should in some sense want it to be like, healthy countries don't wake up screaming right. at each other about politics every morning. But that's our TV. That's what we, that's our culture. I don't know. It's yeah, been, we've been down. so dependent on it. Ratings right. are pretty bad. I mean, that's probably right. healthy. Yeah, I, right. I think, I mean, I'm obviously, I'm a political journalist and we'll be and find these stuff fascinating and we'll cover it. But to me, it feels more like 2012, which isn't, I mean, 2012 in retrospect, like imagine being given the choice between Barack Obama and Mitt Romney as presidents. Like, right. amazing, right? These are two very <laughs> impressive, great right. Americans. Like, right. you know, it could do a lot worse. And, but, and so I don't think it's like low stakes, enough several low stakes, but I do think, and I'm sure by the end, the, there's, you know, many Americans are very panicked at the idea of Donald Trump becoming president again and will be motivated and will come out to vote if he's on the ballot. Yeah. But it, it does feel just like a, there's less interest, there's less panic, there's less drama. I mean, it's to my surprise, like when we launched and we launched right into the midterms, which stressed me out because it's hard to break through in the final weeks of the midterms right. and we do a great coverage out of Washington and great campaign coverage, but. I had sort of assumed that by now, 
campaign coverage would be, you know, the top of the fold of the New York Times every day. Right. And it's really not. I mean, right. a lot of it is finance. It's SVB, it's SBF, it's, you know. Well, it's, it's talking about politics more than the New York Times in some way. You know, they're like, I mean, you know, they, you, do you yeah. listen to All In, by the way? Or like, I'm I do sometimes, yeah. Penetrated, yeah. You know, the Chamath is like cheering for Nikki Haley and David Sachs is clearly cheering for Ron DeSantis. It's funny, yeah, where it's like, they're the show that professes to be less political, but it's, they're almost like more obsessed with like the politics well, if you're, and the media at the moment. Yeah, and Silicon Valley is now at a place where they're Republicans, basically. And so the Republican <laughs> pri- primary is particularly of interest to Republicans. And I think, you know, the old, the draw, and in some sense, the New York Times gets to decide who wins the Democratic primary in some sense, the way All In has a vote in the Republican primary. And so right. since there's not a Democratic primary, That's there's not, not a fight for the soul true. of the Democratic like most, Party. I know no, you're being not sort of tongue-in-cheek, but yes. like... It's just like the people with the loudest voices in Silicon Valley are the richest, who are therefore the most likely to be Republicans. And then, you know, the yeah, Democrats they also among feel them that they have a stake in the Republican right. primary. Like they would like right. to see a lot of people in Silicon Valley would love to see a, you know, free market oriented, anti woke, but not psychotic right. challenger right. to Joe Biden. Cause I think a lot of them feel like, oh, God, I really don't want to have to vote for Joe Biden, who I dislike a million ways but also right. probably don't want to vote for Donald Trump. And so I think there are a lot of people who feel a lot of, this is really true of the business. I don't think actually this is Brazil. Valley. I think this is true of a lot of business people in America who have long been Republicans because they want less taxes, less regulation, and have a view of how the economy should work that is roughly the Republican view and not the Joe Biden, much more well, labor view. Well, the Republican Party view. feels very green field right now. Like if they, you know, from the elite perspective, if they could not talk about trans stuff, which obviously is like the core of the party. Yeah, I mean, it, right, if they could only saying. just not right. talk about not any of the, the things thing that Donald are. Trump... Right. <laughs> yeah, and, I think, and, be, the th- and right. be the thing they used to be, Mitt Romney's Republican Party. Yeah. Right. I wanted to end, I'll let you go, and I thank you so much for taking the time. The Tucker Carlson saga, leaving Fox News. I mean, you've been on Twitter, basically, I don't know, questioning some of the, like, narratives, or have you come to a view on, like, why he left and what it means? No, I think it's a reporting question. And whenever I was, I actually was <laughs> arguing with the, one of the great reporters covering it last night, not Matt Stein, oh, really? who, I also, see that. I, who I would also say this to as to myself, but like you know, in person, just, you know, people are saying, well, you know, I think it was oh, an accumulation in, in of factors. What is... <laughs> I know, so, uh, you know, but, you know, well, I think it was an accumulation of factors. And like, sure, of course, it was accumulation of factors. Everything was an accumulation of factors right. in every story, but nobody has reported like, what was the email that Rupert Murdoch got or the call he got? And he was like, all right, enough. Like, it was something right. specific. And I think there, and I've seen, you know, eight or nine really plausible theories printed based on anonymous sourcing as though they were fact. And, right. and many of and them And it feels like when they, when they write a new story, made, they have to like embed their old story in and pretend like, oh, maybe that was part of the reason. To, it's like a cobbling of reasons. Yeah. And story. I think it is true that there were lots of good reasons to fire him. Right. He was insubordinate. He said disgusting things about women. Right. He had really diverged from Murdoch's view on Ukraine. He thought he was bigger than the play. I mean, lots of things. But those right. things, most of those things had been true. Oh, he was the favorite of Murdoch's ex-fiance. I mean, lots of things that were true, but none of <laughs> right. them that happened right. between Friday when he was, you know, and Monday morning when they fire him with no notice. I mean, it's an incredible study on how not to run a company. And some of the stories are based on anonymous leaks that from Fox's PR department where you can tell because they're like, well, you know, we did this in a totally normal manner in which we had meetings and made decisions. And 
you know, it wasn't Rupert Murdoch. It was really a bunch of executives who do their jobs in a totally normal right. fashion. And like anyone who's ever covered Murdoch's world knows right. that's not true. Like that's right. not how it works. But they only right. afterward go out and try to make it seem like it's not a sort of erratic tycoon shooting from right. the hip. But he has always been an right. erratic tycoon shooting right. from the hip. And that was sort of the story you all did, right? That like Fox is just, yeah. that, that Murdoch's empire is like a, defined by how erratic it is. Yeah, and that's always been true, by the way. Like it's not right. some totally brand new thing, but Max Tani did a very smart story about how in the last several months, even by Murdoch's standards, you know, they announced a merger of Fox Score and News Corp right. and then called it off. He announced his engagement, called it off, you know, pushed out a couple of editors and then fired Tucker Carlson. The notion that <laughs> you can sort of, Right. Be like, well, these were all a series of considered decisions that right. came out of meetings of the senior leadership team, blah, blah, right. blah. Like, of course not. All right. This will test your ability here to forecast media. Do you think Tucker Carlson is relevant without Fox? Of course. He's re relevant. I mean, relevant is a, sure. you know, a low sure. bar. I think he'll think about running for president. Why wouldn't he? It's a way to stay relevant. I, but I think people underestimate the power of that platform. Like Fox, like, you know, a bunch of people have come and gone. Bill O'Reilly, Megyn Kelly, Glenn Beck, they're all employed and gainfully and relevant, but right. not. And Duffer will be, is bigger than they are. It'll be more relevant. But, you know, that's a very old audience. It's a, it's people who navigate by speaking out loud to their remotes. It's not people who, <laughs> I mean, no offense, that is a great way. That's, I do that sometimes, but it's I not it. necessarily an audience that downloads your new app. And we know this because Fox launched an app, Fox Nation. Right. That did not take off, even though they used Fox's own channels to say, come get more Tucker over here. And people did not do it. So it's very hard for me to see without the Fox platform and the Fox audience who are disproportionately in their 70s. Like there is a smaller, younger group of people who are right wing nationalists and populists and love Tucker, but it's not the same. Ben Smith, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate it. It's great talking to you, Eric. Thanks. Great. Cool. Thanks so much. I'm Eric Newcomer. That was my conversation with Ben Smith. Shout out to Tommy Heron, our audio editor. Riley Kinsella, my chief of staff. Young Chomsky for the music. Thanks again to Vanta for sponsoring this episode. Check us out on iTunes, YouTube, and of course, subscribe to my Substack, newcomer.co. Thanks so much. See you next week. Goodbye. 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 Goodbye.